Unlike the cosmic shift that occurred at noon when Christ died and the sky turned dark and the temple curtain ripped in two, resurrection comes to us in pieces. No brass, no fanfare, no Easter lilies, just morning dew and burial spices. A missing body, idle tales. The story slowly unfolds. It's been a few weeks since Holy Week, and this is our first Easter season episode of 2021. If you feel like you blinked and Easter had already vanished along with the jelly beans and chocolate bunny, this is for you. Resurrection unfolds, like the fiddlehead ferns just beginning to unfurl here in central Indiana. New life is sometimes realized incrementally. Our taking stock of it and its influence, its transformation of us, this is the work of Easter. Hey everyone, and welcome to New Way. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. I love to think about that human element of Jesus who over and over again in the Gospels goes out to a solitary place and the disciples are like, where did Jesus go? And he's off by himself. And every time the crowds get too close and that pressure and that chaos gets too much, the release valve is to go out in nature and reconnect. In this week's episode, Pastor Zach Morton and I talk about Easter's unfolding first, in a garden. Zach grew up hanging out among the blackberry brambles of rural West Virginia and Pennsylvania, accompanying his grandparents to bluegrass festivals. While they played, he played among the wild earth. He has since returned to the region where he pastors First Presbyterian Church of Morgantown in West Virginia. In part one of our two-part conversation, Catching Crayfish, the setting of the empty tomb, and the beauty of the garden. Let's jump right in. Zach Morton, I am very, very grateful and excited to have you here for this conversation today, our post-Easter kickoff, as we explore the meanings of new life among us. Just grateful for the work that you do and the chance to be together and reflect together. I'm really grateful for the chance to do this, so thanks for asking me to be a part. Anytime I get to work with you and Marthane, I'm very pleased and very happy to be able to do that. So shout out to Marthame, whom you never see, but is working behind the scenes. Yes, the fabulous Marthame Sanders, the one and only. (laughs) This is kind of an exciting time to talk with you. Uh, You are located in almost heaven, West Virginia. You have a little piece of land and a creek flowing behind it. And I know you have always been, since I've known you, drawn to creation, wilderness, being outside, I wonder if we could start this conversation thinking a little bit about where you imagine that comes from in your heart, your experience. From an early age, I always remember feeling drawn to the outdoors, and it starts with a childhood experience. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh, actually. My grandparents were in a bluegrass band, and so what that entailed is during the summer, every weekend, they would travel to a different festival, and they'd take me with them during the summer. So it'd be, you know, from Thursday night through Sunday afternoon. I'd go with them, and their main interest was not me. It was playing (laughs) bluegrass music. (laughs) So what their rule was, uh, look, you can go and do whatever you want after you eat breakfast, and you have to be back for dinner. Wow. And that was it. That was my rule. Because we were out in the middle of nowhere. These were in, you know... Northern Pennsylvania up near Erie all the way down to Summersville, West Virginia, along what we refer to as the I-79 corridor for people who are familiar with this tri-state area part of Appalachia. That was my only rule. So I would go off into the woods. I would swing from grapevines, climb trees, 
go knee deep in the mud in the creek. My main interest was catching salamanders and snakes and turtles and the whole like. And so I just literally dive in headfirst into the wilderness and find everything I could. And the cool thing was there were a lot of folks who had also spent time who were, you know, the adults that were around us. It was a real community kind of experience. Everyone's watching out for each other in these uh, places where we went to the festivals. And so they would take the opportunity to teach us about the outdoors to appreciate the different animals, the different plants, how to identify trees, some things that we could eat and not eat, like different things like that. I have a specific memory of going to one place there was a, a huge creek, and we caught crayfish that were, I swear, in my seven-year-old memory, they were the size of lobsters, right? <laughs> and we caught these crayfish with coffee cans. They were so big. And then we literally took them back to a person's camp and cooked them up and had a crawfish boil, a proper Appalachian crawfish boil at the festival. That is awesome. You know, I am so excited, and I can see that Marthame is very excited, I think, about the bluegrass band, and I'm excited about the creatures and the plants that you had the freedom to discover. What a childhood experience. So you brought that with you all along. Yeah, I think it just sunk into my bones from doing that summer in and summer out. I mean, all the way up through high school, I continued to go. And that was the highlight was being outside for three or four days at a time with really no rules. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this and uh, get my grandparents in trouble. But that's how it was. (laughs) Hats off to your family for that awesome experience. We've explored this a little bit on the podcast in general and throughout this wilderness season. Um, There are times when certain activities are, quote, supposed to happen inside and certain activities are supposed to be outside. As a parent, don't dribble the basketball in the house. You know, take your shoes off when you come inside. You have more freedom outside in a lot of ways. But in church also, in my experience, this formal understanding of worship was something that happened within the four walls of a sanctuary in really a particular sort of room. And you and I mentioned when we talked earlier this week that the Easter story, uh, we're sort of post-Easter exploring these multifaceted and varied encounters that Jesus's people had with the fact that he's not in his tomb anymore. You mentioned to me that it's outside, right? I mean, the tomb obviously was outside and there was creation surrounding it. And I wonder if you have particular favorite aspects of the story as you imagine this early morning encounter of women at the tomb. Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of background on how I see and approach these kinds of stories because yeah. I think it's a little bit unique to me. When I went to seminary, I studied archaeology and a lot of ancient Near Eastern history at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which gave me kind of a different approach and a different angle to when I started studying hermeneutics and theology and interpretation, all that kind of stuff. Archaeology teaches you to value the setting and the land and the place. You figure out that lens first, and then you look through that lens at a particular text, which comes from a particular author, from people who were living in specific places in specific times with all these different influences, right? And so I think whenever we read ancient scripture, especially in the Gospels, especially in the Hebrew Bible, we have to consider the settings and the land and the place that the authors are choosing as something particularly meaningful. When you're doing creative writing and you sit down and you write something, you're choosing all these elements. You know, good writers are choosing all those elements for particular purposes. So when I sit down and look at the Easter story, I love, I think the most meaningful part of it for me, this is going to sound 
weird. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> is the setting. Okay. It's the setting of the Easter story. Hmm. If you think about Holy Week, it starts with Jesus entering Jerusalem. So it's an urban setting. Mm -hmm. There's a crowd. It's kind of chaotic. It's a real maelstrom of different cultural and religious and political and economic influences. Jesus is this little humble parade. Caesar is this glorious war horse parade with the, you know, tanks of the day on the other side of Jerusalem. You know, it's all this back and forth political, economic, whatever. Tension. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tension. It's an urban setting. All these people, it's Jerusalem. It's Passover, the most important time of the year. All these people are crammed into Jerusalem. It's swelling. It's chaos, right? Mm -hmm. That's the setting of Holy Week. And then you get to the resurrection story. And where are you? You're in a garden. You're away from the crowds. It's first light, hmm. the beginning of the morning. If you've ever been out, you camped, you've hiked, you know that first hour of daylight and that hour right before the dawn? It's got a different feel than any other time of day. Yeah, yeah. When you're outside. Consider that when you're reading the story. What's the quality to you? Like you are someone I know who intentionally goes out and you might be in New Mexico hiking, mm -hmm. camping by yourself. You choose to be up at those times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the quality or what comes to mind or your heart? I think the best way to answer that is to share a personal experience. Mm -hmm. um, when we were out in Ghost Ranch with one of our cohort retreats, yeah. uh, I went out a little bit early and I camped at White Sands in New Mexico, which is just this gorgeous, gorgeous area that is exactly what you would imagine what it is. It's a huge area of white sands and sand dunes, and there's mountain ranges on either side. And I sat there and watched the sun come up on the western mountain ranges, the sun come up in the east, and you see that first sun glow of the day hit those far mountains before anything else. And it's just the only thing that you can think in a moment like that is like, wow, God is here, and it's absolutely beautiful and it exceeds anything that we could ever dream up mm -hmm. and you just feel a sense of kind of peace and tranquility and all the other stuff that we worry about kind of melts away and it's just you and the presence of the divine and what's going on <laughs> in nature mm -hmm. it's that vista in front of you it centers you in a different kind of way i think that's the kind of feeling that we're meant to think about with the setting of the resurrection story and when you consider how immense that contrast is from the chaos of Holy Week in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, in the streets, him getting arrested, betrayed, and how quickly that scene of events goes from him eating with his disciples to being taken down from that cross. It's just chaos. And then we get the garden, hmm. which of course is an allusion to Genesis and the garden story in Genesis 2, which is taking us back to that first primal sense of being completely connected with the divine and with the earth. And I think what that setting helps us do is remember that resurrection is not just about humanity's reconciliation. It's about the reconciliation and restoration of all things of the earth and this allusion back to that tranquil, completely well-connected space between God, humanity, and the earth that we see in Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. And 
that's the setting that the whole thing takes place in where Mary Magdalene has her thing, where the angels show up, where the disciples are running. And, you know, I guess Peter was the one who was especially out of shape there. But it, it always comes back <laughs> to the garden. I like the subheading where Mary Magdalene has her thing. That's a subheading in my translation. You know, it harkens back to something Claudio Carvalhes was saying a couple of episodes ago that he's like, there's this whole community that we don't even see around our houses, in our parks, you know, the mice, the crickets, the the birds, the ants, the worms. And of course, I love nature. And there's such a tenderness in that image, which he evokes. But it's also something that struck me in conversation with my two boys, Sam and Ben, as we read the Mark Easter story together. And I said, who do you think was there early in the morning when they opened the tomb? And I was sort of going back to imagine the text, et cetera. I expected them maybe to say Mary or, you know, Ben said the angel. And Sam said, I think the rabbits were there. And he was looking out at our yard. This is the time of year where the cottontail rabbits are jumping around and yeah. having their brood and <laughs> eating all the clover in the yard. They're it's, busy. <laughs> it's fascinating if Jesus came out whenever he did. Did he come out and spend a little time with the creatures? <laughs> Was he greeted by a rabbit or a bird song? Did he feel the sunlight in his body? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the intimacy that you experience on the mountaintop at White Sands National Park is maybe the same that Jesus felt in Jesus's body that interconnectedness. Yeah, feeling and experiencing resurrection in our life, in our bodies, in our senses, in our spirit is connected in some deep way to those experiences in nature that we have where we feel that deep peace and connection. Yes. yes. That's it. I think resurrection, when we experience it in real life, feels something like that. Yeah. And Jesus chased that in his own life, right? I love to think about that human element of Jesus who over and over again in the Gospels, goes out to a solitary place and the disciples are like, where did Jesus go? <laughs> and he's off by himself. Yeah, he goes into the wilderness. And every time the crowds get too close and that pressure and that chaos gets too much, the release valve is to go out in nature and reconnect. Yeah, I wish we had a component built in into our spiritual communities whereby in addition to having these regular check-ins about money about prayer about corporate worship we were like okay time to go out and be in nature time to go out and pray with your thoughts and commune and reflect i rarely hear that or say that or suggest that <laughs> we just had a snowstorm last night it's april 21st it's fine the last frost date is like may 14th so it's to be expected but one of the things i've noticed this year is that some of these springtime emergences happen uh, very, very slowly, and some of them happen very quickly. And that has become for me somewhat of an analogy for, as I read the text, and encounters that people have with the news of the resurrection. You know, you might have a aronia chokeberry cherry bush that I've been waiting for like these buds to emerge for maybe four weeks. They're still tight. I don't know when they're going to emerge. I just got to know this plant. And then there are other daffodils that you see. There's a bud and then the next day there's a totally open flower. And sometimes in the gospels you have immediate recognition. Sometimes it takes an entire walk. You know, I'm alluding to the walk to Emmaus, mm. where there was it an eight mile journey with Jesus, and nobody has a clue that he's the one who's right there walking with them until he sits down and breaks bread with them and they share a meal together. But there are others who are fearful or who doubt, 
And I'm interested to explore this tension with you and others going forward into our resurrection conversations, because our corporate acknowledgement of Easter as a Christian church doesn't often invite the unfolding of this news in our personal life and in our communal life. It's sort of, I think I joked a couple of weeks ago that here's your Easter basket, here's the chocolate bunny, you bite the head off of the bunny, it's over, and then you like, you wait for next year. It's over by two o'clock on Sunday, Easter Sunday, versus it's only beginning to unfold and it may not hit you that day. It may hit you when you least expect it. And it may take weeks and months and years to unfold. Yeah, sir. I love that observation because it's so true. The best way I can put it is that we don't think experientially about our theology and our traditions. Mm. Our theology and our traditions, if we search them back far enough, if we trace them back to their sources, they're all rooted in some kind of human experience, right? Like the Wesleyan tradition is this like mystical experience of someone's heart being strangely warmed. The Lutheran tradition is this experience of him running from lightning. Mm. And I think really on some level, if our theology, if our practice, if our traditions somehow end up divorced from our daily life experience, then we're missing the point. Mm. We're missing the plot. We've lost the soul of what we're supposed to be about as a spiritual community who are engaged with God's ongoing work in the world. And this is partly the work of pastors and faith communities together is parsing this out. This is our unending work, is how do the stories of people's experiences before in our tradition and that we see in Scripture, that's what Scripture is, it's this wonderful collection of how people's lives and experiences connected with their understanding and conceptions of the divine. Like, how do those things still resonate in our life today, in our communal, in our personal, in our religious communal life today? How do those things resonate? And where are we finding the common threads in our own experience with their experience? And that's like the essence of our religious practice and our tradition in Scripture. And I think we don't often think of it through that lens. So when it comes to Easter and resurrection, right, like... That's a story that we place stock in, that it's central to our faith, and that historical event is important. But we can't leave it in the past, right? Mm. It has to sort of be revivified in our communal life and our personal experiences today. So it's like a paradigm for how we experience God in the world, how we experience new life, how we experience transformation in a thousand different ways. And so... It's sort of like the Easter story can be a lens, the glasses through which we see our spiritual experience in the world. Mm -hmm. That when we reconcile situations, when we see dead institutions, dead systems that are producing death and all sorts of awful things in the world, and we hope and we start to work for those things to change, that's all that story of resurrection, of new life. We have to find those connections mm. between that ancient story and our life today. And that's where we find the hope and the motivation to keep going. I think so often of how the African-American church connected so well those ancient stories in the Hebrew Bible to their lived reality of the day. And that's the key. I think we've lost a little bit of that in our predominantly white denominations is we've lost that ability and that sort of theological imagination to bridge that divide between our theology, our tradition, and scripture to our lived reality and the things we value and work for and experience together as a society, as communities of faith, and as individuals. And I think that's so important with the Easter story for uh, 
realizing how we're still participating in that transformative resurrection work today. That's really good. That's really powerful stuff and such an invitation to all of us who are listening. You know, what do we do with these, as you said, dead, dormant, chaotic, or destructive systems all around us? Do we say, oh, that's the way it is? I like what Tillich says a little bit about the holiness of the ground of being as two parts. It's the holiness of being, but it's also the holiness of becoming. And many of us find ourselves smack within that. And we maybe have not recognized that there is a certain level of agency and call, vocation for people of the spirit, people of the way of Jesus, acknowledging the beauty of being. And I don't think you can actually imagine the beauty of what's to be without having these integrated experiences in our lives. You're in a community and in a region of the country that the extracting industries, this idea that the land is something that we take from, usually out of the community, to benefit other people. The word that I especially liked that you used when you were closing that last part was integration. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) And that sort of interdependent view of the world is something I think we desperately need and that Appalachians are learning from and learning to embrace because we're in a context where I've heard our area referred to by folks like Chris Hedges and some others as sacrifice zones for Mm. corporate capitalism. Wow, that's so powerful. I mean, literally, I play soccer here on a reclaimed mountaintop where the whole top of the mountain was removed. And the soil is terrible, by the way. They can barely get grass to grow. Wow. And that's a mountaintop removal mining? Mountaintop removal mining. So that's where there's a layer of coal so far below the surface. And the cheapest way to get at that coal is to blow up the mountain Wow. to come down on the coal instead of digging into the side of the hill. And so they remove the mountaintop, remove the coal, and then you're just left with the innards of the mountain exposed. And you're destroying... <laughs> Millions of years of work. One of the oldest mountain ranges in the world. One of the most beautiful places. And we're just sacrificing and just decimate the ecosystem. All for the purpose of extracting money. Mm. And that money, most of it does not stay in West Virginia even. It's one thing if it's benefiting your local community, but it goes out and it leaves. Can I give a caveat here, Zach, in the middle of this? Because I think sometimes I'll throw it out. They're like, oh, Zach, what a downer. Jeez, you're talking about mountaintop removal mining. This is supposed to be the Easter episode. We're talking about resurrection. That's really depressing. That's about politics and economy. It's not about theology. Stay in your field. And also, (laughs) as somebody who lives not in West Virginia, uh, who isn't playing soccer on those mountains, be like, why would people there do that? Because it's Good Friday, right? Mm. Like, that's what that practice is. It's systems of power and control and wealth extraction killing the land, hurting the people. We've had so many people who have had terrible birth defects, people's drinking water who's forever screwed up because of the chemicals from mine drainage and runoff from these kinds of sites. And we have toxic sludge pools that are, some of them are literally perched up the hill from schools in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use a dramatic phrase, but like they've raped and pillaged this area, sent it out, taken advantage of the people while they were at it. You know, we have quite a history of the labor movement starting in West Virginia because of how exploitative these coal industries were. Mm -hmm. And they pay people as little as they can, and they ship 
the wealth out and it doesn't come back to benefit the communities. And I think that's like a good Friday story of that's the death. That's the death now. Because in a similar way on the Good Friday story, you have these powers of influence that are much bigger than the people, than Jesus, than this grassroots movement that seek to crush it. Yeah. And we've experienced that here in Appalachia. Hmm. I think now we're in a Holy Saturday kind of place, right? Where it's happened and what's left is to like mourn and try and lick our wounds and save what's left. But... As a follower of the Easter story, I have to believe that there's a better future in store, that there's a certain amount of redemption that can happen, not just with the land, which will take centuries, yeah, but with the people. And I think there's tremendous possibilities here in Appalachia, which is why I choose to stay here and I envision being here for a long time. I want to be part of that redemptive story of this region. But I see it all through that lens of the Easter story, that that's what we've experienced here. Part two with Zach is coming your way next week. You're going to love this one. It's all about trails. Off trail, on trail, following a map, getting lost, finding the scenic vista. And for some of us, wondering why you agreed to a hike in the first place. Zach unpacks for us the metaphorical language of the trail and offers some stirring questions as we thoughtfully consider what kind of church and world can emerge in the months and years to come. In the meantime, you can follow Zach and even join the church online for worship at firstpresmorgantown.org. Thank you for listening to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our growing community streams from Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.